You have a right to free speech and a right to religion, but I think you, the first right is the right to survive. The first human right is a right to live. The first human right is a, is a right to defend yourself. And so when you don't have a gun, you simply can't effectively do that. Hello there, how are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Level. Now, as the world migrates from traditional walled garden financial rails to Bitcoin, Level has rebuilt its Bitcoin trading app to become the first full suite Bitcoin banking app. The Bitcoin revolution isn't just about investing dollars. It's about replacing them. So while other apps help you to buy Bitcoin, the Level app lets you use your Bitcoin for daily life. You can get paid in Bitcoin, you can spend Bitcoin anywhere, and you can even earn Bitcoin rewards. All of this is alongside a traditional fiat account, so you can manage your Bitcoin alongside your traditional currencies. Now, Level are reserving 500 beta slots for WBD listeners ready to go all in and bank in Bitcoin. If you want to find out more, head over to level.co forward slash WBD, which is lvl.co forward slash WBD for info and early access. Next up, it's Casa. Whether you've just bought your first SaaS or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person who should be in charge of your Bitcoin and your financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin does not have to be difficult because Casa makes it so easy. Getting started is super simple. You just download the app, create an account and enjoy a 30-day free trial. And if you need some assistance, it is just a click or phone call away. Casa has best-in-class customer support and free online resources to support you. Now, 12 Canada recently showed us the importance of self-custody and taking control of your money when they froze protesters' finances with no warning. Take your financial freedom into your hands by self-custodying your Bitcoin so it can never be frozen without your consent. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Next up, it is Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. And even though they've been with me for a year, I have not sold a single sat with Gemini. I'm only buying, I'm a hodler, but I have been buying Bitcoin with them. Not only have I been buying the dips through Gemini, but I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash W-B-D. Also today, we have sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now, we are over halfway through the season. Liverpool have just picked up their first trophy. Tottenham are struggling as ever. This season is going as planned. But how's it going to finish? Do you know how it's going to finish? Will Liverpool win the title? Will they snatch it away from City? Who's going to win the league? Who's going to win the Champions League? Who knows? Well, anyway, if you want to take a bet, sportsbet.io has got you covered. 
And not just with football. They cover tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, there's always a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. That is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Ragnar, good to see you again. Good to be back. We're here in LA again. It's nice. Yeah, beautiful setting. Beautiful ocean out there. Uh, first time we spoke two and a half years ago, we got deep into the topic of guns and Bitcoin. Guns and Bitcoin. Thank you for my t-shirt. Appreciate oh, that, you're man. You're welcome. Also, as a Guns N' Roses fan, I love this. That's what I thought. Yeah. Um, but the podcast was a lot smaller then, and we talked about important topics. And since then, I've learned more about guns. I'm not sure how much my position's changed, but... I, I want to revisit that whole topic and then get into a bit of Bitcoin with you and sure. maybe talk a bit about your event that's coming up as well. Okay. So last time we spoke, you told me a story about your dad, mm-hmm. which I didn't see coming, and that knocked me back a bit. But that gave some context for me around why you appreciate guns, why you're a proponent for guns. Do you mind telling that story again? Sure. Uh, when I was 16, my dad committed suicide. He shot himself with a pistol. Um, one that I had held myself and one that I had shot. So that made a really big impact, obviously, um, on everything I view about guns. It gives me a lot of sympathy for people who are victims of gun violence. I understand the fear about guns. I understand the impact they could make. I understand when people disagree with having guns at all. And it took me at least 15 years to, to own a gun after that happened. And it was a very slow process to get back into guns. I would have thought somebody went through that, which is probably about as rough an experience you can how old are you 16 16 that's yeah. about as rough an experience you can go through i mean my son's 17 i i couldn't imagine him going through that i could imagine you never wanting to hold a gun again well yeah i mean i would have nightmares of like picturing what what, what it was like what it must have been like when when it happened in the aftermath and it was my grandfather who found him in the house so i mean i was i was glad that i wasn't the one who found him but just all those sort of like made up memories of what it could have been. Just, it was, it was nightmares. So you can imagine having a bad nightmare, but it was like real and it's your father and it's, it's violence and it's guns. So it just took me a long time, but you know, time, time passes and just memories fade. And, and I just decided, look, I got to get over this. And I slowly kind of worked my way. <clears throat> I slowly worked my way back into guns, going to the gun range, renting guns, going with a girlfriend that I had at the time. And then when I bought my first one, um, this was probably 10 years ago. That was a big, a big moment. And for you, was the process of reintroducing yourself to guns, going to the range and shooting and owning a gun, was, was that any part of therapy? Did that help you deal with it? Or was it just a completely separate issue? Well, I, I never went to therapy for my dad, but it was, it was just like taking down the anxiety level of guns because it's, it's basic psychology, right? You have a negative association with something like when this happens. And so it was just me being feeling, me feeling calm around guns, me being able to pick it up and think, what would it be like to put this in my mouth and pull the trigger? Okay. And, and not having those thoughts. And for a while I did have those thoughts and I won't go too deep into that, but I did have those thoughts when I first owned the guns. And so I just had to like slowly work my way. And when I first bought it, I didn't keep it loaded. Normally you keep a gun loaded, obviously, in case you need it in an emergency, but I wouldn't keep it loaded. And then I went through a rough time after I owned the gun and I just, I locked the gun away and gave it to my brother because I just, I didn't feel safe with it. So. You didn't feel safe yourself with it. Yeah, I was going through a really rough time and I just didn't, 
you know, when you, I don't know if what you, I kind of know a little bit about your background, but I don't know how bad of times you've been through, but if you're in a really dark place and you have certain thoughts, you got to pay attention to that and, and realize the danger that you're in. And my dad being suicidal and, and he struggled with mental illness, I knew like, okay, now's the time to just take a break from, from the guns. And then, then things got better just like time passes. And then I was, I was good again to, to shoot guns. Yeah, I mean, six, seven years ago, I, I was in a very bad place. I had chronic anxiety, panic attacks, marriage breakup, the most awful breakup. Um, suffering with what used to be when an anxiety attack would come, it would last the whole day. And the only way I can get rid of it was going to sleep. My company, my company collapsed and uh, everything, was, everything was shit. Uh, and yes, I had some very dark thoughts and there were times where I was very unhappy with life yeah but I was a broken human Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. luckily I never went I was never so bad that I knew I was a danger to myself at one point and I had to get some help which I did Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think I was close enough to ever consider the worst scenario but time heals yeah and here we are Years later, where life is good, you can get there. Yeah, no, I, right now in my life, I've never been better, like in every way with my marriage, with finances, with health. I mean, everything is so good. So I'm just so glad, like, things worked out well. And I've seen that with my brother, too. My brother um, has gone through rough times as well, but he's doing so well. He has a son, and it's just that's a, like why I like being this age because I've been through some things now and I've mm-hmm. seen the good, I've seen the bad and I just I just want people to know like if it's bad, it gets better. Like How, how old are you? I'm 40. Well, I don't want to say exactly, okay. but mid-40s. But similar to me. Okay. Yeah, similar to me. Yeah, uh, it is a good age. You have uh, a little bit more wisdom experience, but everything starts to creak and ache. Yeah. That's the uh, that's the downside. But yeah, things do get better. It can get better. My, my brother was uh, really good with me during that time because uh, the, there were times I would wake up and I'd like wake up and I'd go, oh, <laughs> yeah. fuck, another day to get through. My brother would always say to me, just call him. And he would say, there will always be better days. Yeah. There will always be better days. Just keep, you know, keep at it. Running was the one for me. What mm-hmm. I ended up doing is... I went to the doctor and they wanted to put me on antidepressants mm-hmm. and I didn't want it. And I went and bought some, uh, you, we say trainers, you say sneakers. Okay. I went and bought some trainers, some running trainers. I went out that that day and ran five miles and I pretty much ran nearly every day for a year. It would mm-hmm. be five to six days a week, five to 10 miles and then uh, at least one half marathon. And I got a lot thinner than I was now. Yeah. Uh, but that, that, that changed it for me and that changed my life and uh, yeah, things do get better. Um, so... You've, but you've gone a long way further than just getting comfortable with a gun. Yeah. Now you're a proponent of guns. You support guns. You believe in uh, the right to own a gun. Um, you've made it part of your career and life. That's a real swing of the pendulum the other way. Why, why did that happen? I think it happened because I was able to get over my dad's death to a certain extent and kind of restored me to just who I am and how I was born, which is very pro-freedom. And it became like the cognitive power to be able to analyze rationally sort of the pros and cons of guns and sort of the mathematics as well. What are the chances of, say, you know, a criminal 
you know, um, attacking you? What are the chances of being a victim of, of suicide? What are the chances of a government being tyrannical? And I was just very analytical. I am by nature. So I think by having that trauma pass, then my cognition was able to really take hold of the situation of guns in general. And I went back to loving guns. I and mean, I, did, I did kind of grow up with them. I, I shot them when I was a kid and stuff like that. So it was kind of an emotional journey and, and uh, a psychological mental journey as well. What does pro-freedom mean for you? Because I've had a lot of conversations this week. I know it sounds like a simple question, but what does pro-freedom mean for you? I think being able to make decisions about anything in your life, as long as it doesn't affect someone directly. And whether that's be, that be, usually it's the government, but it can be private enterprise. So just, just basic human autonomy to make decisions, even really bad, stupid decisions. So if you want to take any drug, you should be able to take any drug. Absolutely. Um, if you want to jump out of a plane, you can jump out of a plane. I've done that. Yeah. Um, you want to go and swim with the sharks, you can go swim with the sharks. You yeah. don't want a nanny state telling you the things you can and can't do. But at the same time, does pro-freedom mean for you no government? Are you one of the, are you a supporter of no government or do you accept limited government? I've evolved a little bit in the last couple of years. I think I was pretty hard in the anarchy, but I've seen, I've just realized that I think a government will always be inevitable. So it's just choosing which one. And I've been reading a lot of history in the last couple of years. Um, and I've seen what good governance can do. So I've thought less about the state and more about civilization. Okay. Because civilization subsumes the state. The state is just part of civilization. So when you, we think in terms of civilization, then you start bringing in to your responsibility. And I think being older, you become responsible for more people. And so you have to start thinking, well, I'm not just free to do what I want. Like, hey, my actions affect people. It's gonna affect my kids, my grandkids. It's gonna affect my parents as they are now. It's gonna affect my, even my ethnicity, you know, my place where I, I live. And then so there's this greater sense of responsibility, I think maybe just with age. And so to answer your question, I believe that I, I could accept a small government but I'm more concerned about civilization itself because the state comes from civilization. So if our civilization is pro-freedom, pro-free speech, um, respect for individual autonomy, then you're gonna get a good government. But if your civilization is violent, if it's oppressive, if it doesn't value human life, you're gonna get a really bad government. So my focus is more on civilization, I would say. Can you talk about some of the examples you've read in history of good government? Um, Greece and Rome. Okay. That's what I've been studying a lot, like Marcus Aurelius, Plato, Aristotle, all the big names in just classical Western thought. And we know that democracy is kind of birthed in Greece. And they actually had a really great city-state system, which was small government, right? That's, that's if you give a best example of small government, it's the Greek city-states. Because it was enough to where they could defend their villages and, and, and be successful and have art and culture and literature, but not so big or it was oppressive. Um, that's hard to scale to the United States or, or Europe or everywhere else. So can you apply that? I don't know. And then Rome is an interesting story because Rome actually was not a city-state democracy. It, it ended up being you know, governed by Caesars, by emperors, dictators, if, if you want to think that way. But Rome is highly successful civilization. If you look at the high culture, the Colosseum, um, the great works that they did, um, bringing water to places that had never had water, bringing roads, it was an incredible civilization that actually lasted, you know, thousands of years. The Colosseum is still around. The aqueducts in Europe are, are still being used. I mean, you know that better than I do. 
the Colosseum is one of the most unbelievable things I've ever seen. I, I went to Rome and it was the first thing I wanted to do. I was like, I have to see the Colosseum. And you're walking down the streets and eventually you come down one and you see it mm -hmm. in the distance. And you're like, this is the size of a, a soccer stadium now. Mm -hmm. I'm saying soccer, I'm going to get shouted out for that, for the Americans. But this is the size of a football stadium now, but it was built hundreds of years ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was what, 2,000 years, something like that? Yeah. And that was just the Coliseum. They built so many amphitheaters mm -hmm. and other such uh, huge works. And so you think, well, a libertarian state might not have built that. If you had just a bunch of ind individualistic people who didn't want to, like, participate in a greater good, or maybe who had a central government to kind of build those things out, Rome might never have happened. And it feels like in the US that the state is failing. Mm -hmm. It feels like over the border in Canada, the state is failing. Mm -hmm. Some people will obviously disagree with everything we say today. There yeah. are people, people who disagree, but it feels like the size of the federal government here and the overreach of the federal government um, has gone too far. The pendulum swung too far mm -hmm. and Certainly amongst the Bitcoin community, there are talks about would the US ever balkanize? But even at state level, that might be too big. So you like the idea of the city-state? The city-state. And we see this in El Salvador, obviously. Now we see the president down there wanting to form, you know, a, a Bitcoin city, you know, I think is, is what they call it. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting about Rome is you also see this great civilization with the fall of Rome. And you see that every great empire goes through the same process the british empire was the most powerful empire now it's not it's still still around but it's not the great british empire the u.s is an empire whether we want to admit that or not mm -hmm. and it's in decline just like rome declined just like every other great empire declined ussr ussr even the eu now is mm -hmm. fractured with mm -hmm. the uk leaving so we know the result of what happens when uh, when these empires end it's a slow breaking up into smaller pieces. And that's where I see the U.S. going is, is into smaller pieces. It's not going to be exciting with this great big day we wake up and, you know, we're, we're, we're five countries. It's going to be a very slow, painful decline. And then it's going to be, I think the U.S. will break up into pieces. I think there are many people who like the idea of that happening. I'm kind of one of them because where I live right now in the Intermountain West, we haven't ever had, I think, a mask mandate except for like a month when COVID first hit. And we have great gun laws, we have low taxes, great business environment. So when I see these laws come in on the federal side, I thought, well, if we could veto, we would veto every single one of these laws. And it's so foreign what the federal government is doing compared to the people where I live. And so I would be happy if my region, my county was, was independent. There'd be some big downsides and it would be a rough transition. But if you said, Ragnar, could you have your area of the U.S. be its own nation, absolutely. What are, what are the downsides? Well, the downsides would, would be we're so intertwined with like the government is so big, so just the basic things like freeways, right? Like the federal government funds most of those, so you gotta figure stuff out like that. Um, you gotta figure out what, how are you gonna defend yourself? Because right now we have some, some protections there with the federal government. So it's like, well, what happens if there's some sort of China or, or something like that comes after us? Yeah, that was one of the conversations that I had with VJ Boyaparty this week. And he made a very interesting point. He's, you know, he is a libertarian, mm -hmm. but he said he recognizes the risks of absolute liberty, complete and, utter, complete and absolute freedom. Um, and one of the questions I put to him is that 
the US, whether we like it or not, it, I agree with you, it's an empire. Yeah. It tends to operate as the world's police, mm-hmm. which is a thankless task. Uh, and that's not to say that the US hasn't made things, made, made choices which I disagree with, specifically Iraq mm-hmm. and interfering with other countries. Mm-hmm. But it has maintained that position of world police. If, it, if the country was to balkanize and there was no US army, is there a geographical risk from Russia or China who maintain themselves as empires? We've seen the influence China's had throughout the world with the Belt and Road Initiative, but we've also seen the influence they've had on Hollywood here and the NBA. Mm-hmm. How much more influence would they have if there was no federal government? And what is the risk of that? Yeah, you know, Balaji, um, you're probably familiar with yeah. him. So he talks about, he sees the future as basically the China, Chinese empire, in the United States becoming fractured and being more decentralized, but that's where all the technologies and innovation is still gonna happen. But the US, the state, it's slowly going to fail, but in its place will be this more decentralized, robust uh, power, but not at a government level, at sort of an economic innovation level. And I think, I think that's how I see it as well. Yeah, because he talks about ascending and descending nations. Yeah. He says, we need to stop talking about the first and third world. Yeah. Let's talk about the ascending and descending nations. He thinks the U.S. is a descending nation, and he thinks, for example, uh, India is an asc- ascending nation. Mm-hmm. Um, I am British, as you know. Mm-hmm. We're very different in Europe from the U.S. I know we share a language, but we are fundamentally quite different. And my experience of coming to the U.S. and talking to people like you and spending time with you know, friends uh, across the U.S., but mainly red states and Texas and Wyoming is that I feel I feel that this drag towards pro-freedom, um, which might sound alien to people. They're like, why aren't you automatically pro-freedom? Well, I am also pro-democracy. And uh, in the UK, we do have certain elements of uh, the way we organize ourselves. For example, our National Health Service is a socialist system, but pretty much everyone likes it. Um, but I find myself coming out to the US and I'm, I am dragged more more into these ideas of pro-freedom, but what does it mean? And obviously one of the big ones in that is guns. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not a fan of guns when I'm in the UK, (laughs) but I am when I'm in Texas. Weird, why is that? I think it's the cultural shift to become a a pro-gun nation for me is quite... There's just a lot of unknowns. So, I mean, I don't expect around here in LA to see guns or meet people who own guns. They've got very different laws here. But almost everybody I know in Texas is like, you've got a gun. They're like, i got 30 guns. Yeah. <laughs> Do you yeah. want to go and shoot one? Yeah. Yeah, I went out recently and shot a bunch of guns. And it feels like to me that the culture of guns has spun, uh, spanned so many generations that it is already a natural part of the society. But the shift from a non-gun nation to a pro-gun nation, I don't know what that means. I think it goes back to civilization. Like this, the gun thing isn't a legal question so much as it is a civilizational one. And I really saw this when I left California, moved to where I am now. In California, I, I wanted to conceal carry a gun, but I, I couldn't. Where I lived, they wouldn't allow it. So I moved to a place where I didn't even need a permit to conceal carry. I just put a gun in my holster in my pocket and, and that was it. But I didn't feel like I needed the gun anymore. 
because it's such a safe place where it's, it's a civilized place with the rule of law. And so part of the U.S. is, is so uncivilized. And that's where the real violence comes in is the, is the areas that don't have that civilization of people being neighborly and feeling united with their people and just being like law-abiding people. And so part of the gun issue is a deeper issue, which is a, a broken civilization of fatherless homes. It's the fatherless homes. I think we talked about we this. We did talk about this. Yeah, yeah. it's the father. It's, it's the number one predictor for violence is a lack of father in the home. And that's a civilization, not like a pro-freedom or anti-government thing. And that's much harder to fix. And liberty doesn't fix that. What does fix it then? families i mean having having family values and where do you get those from there, there, there's no solution there in the state there's no solution even like you could say that libertarian doesn't help that because libertarian is so kind of it can be sort of teenage juvenile like rebelling against you know people in authority so where does that come from it's it's the classic question of humankind where does right and wrong come from there's no easy answers i just know i learned things from my parents yeah, and it's funny, as somebody who's not, I'm not particularly religious, but I really appreciate the some of the morality that comes from religion. Mm-hmm. Some of the, I, I mean, Jeremy here, uh, we've been talking this week because he is religious. I hope you don't mind me saying that, Jeremy. Um, and one of the things I've been considering, because I've never read the Bible, mm-hmm. and I'm not intending to read it because I think I'm, it's going to make me a Christian, but I feel like I want to read it to be educated around some of the morality that comes from that yeah well i grew up in a really religious home i was a missionary and went to a religious college but have since left the religion i'm more of i don't know what i am but but not religious and not necessarily monotheistic but in studying say ancient rome and greece where they had obviously multiple gods was polytheistic but they had this strong belief system like when you read marcus aurelius um, there's the, you know, the four virtues of like wisdom, temperance, justice, uh, and courage. Those are the, the four bedrocks of a stoic philosophy. And there's not really gods involved in that, except though the gods were a way to explain the human condition. So you have like, you know, you have Zeus and you have Apollo and you have Mars and, and you have all these gods. And, and it's, it's still with us to, to this day because it showed wrong and right. It showed when the gods were good and when the gods were bad and when they interacted with humans. And by not having a true sort of monotheistic religion, they, I don't know how much they literally believed in, the, in, the, in their gods. But what they did believe is, is the, the stories that they told that were traditional stories informed how they behaved. And, and when, you, when you read Marcus Aurelius and these other philosophers, their morality didn't come from you know, a man in the sky with a beard. It just came from some sort of passed down values. So he puts us in this tricky position where without some kind of centralized entity pushing these values onto people or explaining these values or teaching these values that perhaps perhaps we we will head towards a like a complete rot in society complete rot in parts of civilization which may lead to some form of collapse that may lead to a rebuilding of society and values perhaps this is just a constant swing of pendulums mm-hmm. because Rome ultimately, ultimately, the the uh, Roman culture ultimately started to rot itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're all, as Bitcoin is referred to, we're all. Oh. 
let the ambulance go past. We're, we're often uh, told stories of coin clipping and inflation in Rome, and that led to the collapse of Rome. Do you think we could be in similar times then? Oh, yeah. We're, we're following the trajectory of a fall of an empire and the fall of Western civilization. Um, when you look at where Europe and the U.S. was, say, in 1890, when you look at the art, you look at the architecture, you look at the music, you look at the literature, contrast that to today, where I see modern art is complete crap. I see. I the, like it. <laughs> I, see the, I see our architecture, just everything is worse. Everything is worse. And that's not, again, a state government liberty issue. That's a civilizational issue. And, and Nietzsche kind of predicted this. He said, you know, like God is dead, we killed God. And he didn't mean like literally, he just meant without now, now that we don't have that God, like you're, you're talking about the centralization kind of top down. He basically said what you said, without that, we're gonna be anchorless. And he kind of predicted where we are now with what's right and wrong. So you're completely right. And that just shows without that, we're, we're adrift. I mean, you look at the West, we're adrift. China, they know exactly what they're doing. They're united. They have a purpose. They, they have a vision. They have a hundred year vision. Are they united? By, by somewhat force, but they're re reasonably homogenous, you know, whereas you look at the U.S. being balkanized and Europe now being um, not very homogenous, comparatively, they're, they're united. My wife is Chinese, and yeah. so I'm pretty familiar with the culture. Would and you live there? No. Why not? Absolutely not. Well, it's, it's kind of ugly, and it's tyrannical. So what's the balance? How do you get the balance right? Because uh, if you if you consider China objectively, there are policies that come down from central government, which you think, yeah, I can get behind that. Some of the policies around uh, uh, how they, I mean, they essentially do the job of parents sometimes mm -hmm. by you know, restricting access to certain materials or certain things mm -hmm. that can educate the children with. But at the same time, it is completely and utterly tyrannical. Whereas a, complete, a more open, I mean, the US is one of the freest countries in the world. And as you've said, whilst it's completely free, it's, there's a complete, there is a breakdown of Western civilization. So what's the balance? I don't know if there is a balance. I think, yeah. I think what it is, is it just goes down to the, to the individuals and the families having the values. And, and to your point about like, what will we do without sort of the top down I don't think we need a top-down sort of structure or entity to push those values down. Because if you look at, say, the rise of Christianity, um, which completely changed the West forever, that wasn't top-down, right? In fact, Rome was the big power. And despite Rome being the big power, Christianity spread. And that was like the missionaries, right? Paul, Peter. Um, it, was, it, was, it was the idea. Christianity spread like I don't want to be disrespectful, but the best way is sort of like a virus where it was, it spread so quickly, so powerfully, and there's no way to fight a virus, right? The antibiotics don't work. And so it's these stories and these ideas. Hmm. I'm, I'm so with you and I have to check myself sometimes, but also like I'm a fan of modern art, but I think, I think art reflects culture and society. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I, I appreciate well, not for that, but I'm totally with you on architecture. I mean, in the UK at the moment, we have these you know, new estates that get built where they'll build 500 houses and they're shit. They're thin. Their internal walls are MDF. Whenever your friend moves into one, they're like, yeah, it's just a bit shit. The walls are cracking. Like, whereas you, when you, if you want to buy a house, 
especially where I live, and there are certain places you want to buy their solid brick houses. We seem to have pushed everything. It's what Bitcoin is say, well, this is what fiat money does. Yeah. Everything is just fast, quick, yeah. a race to the bottom as such. Well, yeah, fiat is just a reflection, again, of society. I, I think cause and effect is civilization, our values, gets us fiat money. Because if, if, if our society had a deeply ingrained sense of, call it sound money, but more value and not quick and fast manufacturing, cheap homes, cheap cars, cheap, cheap music, cheap art, then I don't know if we would have fiat because the people would fight against it so hard. So I think that's just a manifestation of a bigger problem. Can you not flip that and say this breakdown in civilization has, become, has come because of government and fiat and creating this culture of fast, quick, cheap credit, do things quick? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a cycle, right? You get this fast, cheap mentality, then you get the cheap money, then you get wars, and then you get civil, civil liberties being taken away because of the wars, and then you have to have higher taxes because of the inflation, and you have to enforce it. Like now Biden, you know, wants every transaction over $600 to be reported. It's like, well, let's trace all that back. And I really see it as the values and the stories of the people and what they hold. I mean, look at China. Their, their stories they teach their kids is a lot different than what happens in the West. Again, I would never want to live in China. I don't like the Chinese way of doing things, but it just shows the power of, of, of the values. It is quite funny because... Um I was saying to Danny, I can't wait for you to, to meet Ragnar because he's a very different person than he is on Twitter. And uh, <laughs> uh, I think people sometimes uh, see you as like this traditional right-wing American guy. They don't realize you're married to a Chinese lady and you're completely cultured. You understand the values, not just in the US, but across society. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. But it was funny, this story came out about guns and Bitcoin, my company, and they tried to they tried to, she was implying that I was right wing yeah. and there was a conspiracy. And when she asked me to, to interview me, I said, you can do it via emailed questions because I wanted to keep a record of my responses. So the article came out and she, was, she, she edited my response to make it sound like I was right wing, but she didn't include things like, I said, my wife is Chinese. <laughs> like I had a nonprofit where I had two directors, both were Jewish women. Yeah. I mean, so it's a little frustrating. Like Twitter, just the medium doesn't reflect how people really are. Well, and also, they're not proper journalists. Yeah, if she had done her job as a proper journalist, then my story, my side would have come out. Um, but, you know, it, it's tough. Oh, and then she wrote another article that included me, but this time she didn't um, contact me for, for um, comments on what she wrote because after she published the first article, I published all of my questions and answers. And it really embarrassed her because I made her look like a total political hack, which she is. So when she wrote the second article, she didn't contact me. <laughs> Probably because in her mind, you are some white nationalist. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm with it. With white a, supremacist. We are with an immigrant wife with two, you know, Jewish women as directors of my nonprofit. <laughs> it's just like, you're insane. Like that's the best you can do, but they're so intent on putting people in boxes. Yeah, I know. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, of course, I am a BCB customer too now. Now, they heard about the difficulty I was having finding a new bank and they understand Bitcoin. So when they reached out to me and said, Pete, you should move your account over to BCB Group, I was like, sure. Sounds absolutely perfect for me. And I could not be happier with the service they have provided me. 
Now, BCB clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are now expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now, listen, I know some of you have also had trouble with your banking. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up, it is Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, listen, in Bitcoin, we have this saying, right? Not your keys, not your Bitcoin. So if you're a Bitcoin holder, it is your money and it's time for you to own it. And if you're not storing your Bitcoin on a hardware wallet, then you are trusting somebody else. I took control of my Bitcoin back in 2017 when I bought my first Ledger Nano S and I'm still using that same device today. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. Now, if you would like to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to ledger.com which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, it is BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for this future financial world. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin. There are no fees to use this card, no annual fee, and no foreign transaction fees. And you can get 3.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases in your first three months and then 1.5% back forever after. And also for every dollar you spend over 50,000 annually, you can get 2% back in Bitcoin. Now, if you want to stack stats with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com for more information and to find out the terms and conditions. This is BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Also today, we have Compass Mining, and they are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of Compass Mining. I am mining with Compass Mining. Now, I've been doing this for about, wow, what is it, like four months now, and I've mined over half a Bitcoin with them. It's pretty cool. It's very cool, actually. I love the fact that I'm back mining, and I also love the way Compass does this. They've made mining accessible to everyone, and as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded, and now anyone can mine Bitcoin. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they do all the rest of the work for you. Now, if you are interested in mining, or if you want to find out more, then please head over to compassmining.io. That is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Explain to people the background of Guns and Bitcoin. Uh, well, we started in 2018, and it was just an idea. There wasn't like a business plan. I'm going to eventually put on a conference or, or like we're going to put make T-shirts. It was just kind of how I was living life, which is I love guns. I shot guns, you know, my libertarian philosophy, which was stronger back then. And then, of course, love Bitcoin. And the two went together because I see both as like an asymmetric defense against a more powerful adversary. So that was it. And then we made this, this gun case, which included um, cutouts for Bitcoin hardware wallets. Nice. And I did that just for myself. I made my own case. Um, but then I thought, oh, maybe I could sell these. And we did sell them slowly, but we, sold, we did sell out of the cases. And then... Um, it's it like turned, a self-sovereign case. Yeah, it's a self-sovereign case. You have your gun, you have your Bitcoin hardware wallets and a couple of batteries and... Some tin, top, tin pineapple. Yeah, no, that didn't fit in the case. <laughs> that you carry in your pocket, but that's well, that was the idea. Yeah. 
and then just over time, um, I, I put on the conference because I wasn't seeing any conferences that I wanted to go to. Mm -hmm. So again, it was just like, I want this, I'm going to build it myself. And then now we're going on our third one uh, here in a couple months. And you are teaching people at the events about guns and... I assume you have people come who are fans of guns. They come and learn about Bitcoin and vice versa. Yeah. So we call it freedom tech. So, okay. so that includes 3D DIY printed guns. It includes Bitcoin. But now this year we're doing Monero, which a lot of people are actually happy with. Let's talk about that. Yeah. I, I always, uh, very early on in my podcast days, I was, I was like, there are three types of people in this industry. There are crypto people, there are Bitcoin maximalists, and there are Bitcoin maximalists who are like, yeah, but Monero is okay. Yeah, Monero is acceptable to a lot of people. But to me, Monero is the litmus test of sort of intelligence in Bitcoin. Because if you understand the purpose of Bitcoin, you understand that it's a tool and we're just trying to like separate our financial system from the old one. And Monero is such a good money, just technically, it's such a good money that how could you not want to use it? Because... One of, the tr one of the reasons I appreciate Monero, I don't own any right now, I did at one point, but one of the reasons I always appreciated Monero was that um, trying, to, trying to achieve privacy with Bitcoin is hard, yeah. um, especially if you're technically illiterate like I am. Um, you can research and follow all the best uh, practices, but you can make one mistake, suddenly your transaction is traceable. But with Monero, that privacy kind of comes out of the box. It does come out of the box and I didn't realize this. I mean, I knew it in theory because I studied it, but it wasn't until we started accepting Monero at Guns and Bitcoin. And it was an amazing um, experience because we had more uh, people were spending using Monero more than Bitcoin and credit cards combined. Wow. Yeah, it was something like 65% people use Monero. And that's by both number of transactions and the amounts of the transactions. So it was a big, big hit, really eye-opening. And then... Once I held more Monero, I, I would, um, I remember someone want to send me some Monero. So I'm like, okay, I got to generate a new fresh address. And nope. Nope. Same address over and over again. And then they sent me the Monero and I wanted to look it up on, on the, you know, the blockchain explore. Nope. Nope. Can't do that either. Can't do that. So, you know. I mean, it does come with that inherent risk. If there's an inflation bug, you won't know. I've read that, but I'm not sure that's true. I'd have to double check on that, but I think there's a way to detect it, but. I thought I thought you can't you can't count the total supply. I believe you can, but that starts to get past my. It's definitely past my. Yeah, past, <laughs> past my level. So, what do you think the thing is with the the people who are anti Monero? Just do you think it comes on that point of uh, some people are Bitcoin is the only cryptocurrency, and therefore I won't accept anything, and therefore I won't accept Monero. Well, I think Bitcoin maximalism, Bitcoin maximalism started out well as a reaction against ICOs, but it's become a monotheistic religion and it's non-rational. Mm -hmm. So because of that, they can't make a rational judgment about Monero. They can't look at what are the, what are the monetary properties, what are the privacy properties, uh, what's the liquidity, because they're not rational. It's, it's become something that is an identity. There's another part of that too, and that's the idea of sound money. And I wrote a blog post about this, where the idea of sound money is false. Bitcoin is simply not okay. sound money. Why not? Because the definition of sound money is money that, that has stable value and that you can't inflate away. So Bitcoin meets one of those. You can't inflate Bitcoin, but obviously Bitcoin is very volatile. So it doesn't meet both qualifications of sound money. Where does that definition come from? Common dictionaries. Now, there's other definitions of sound money, but 
if you look at um, we'll get Danny to look it up. Yeah, but your common um, definition. Talk to anyone. What does sound money sound to you like? Oh, that, that's money that has good value. The the defense to that would be is that we are migrating towards a Bitcoin standard. In time, Bitcoin will become more stable, but that ability to go from zero to a multi-trillion dollar market requires volatility. Uh, it requires the, and it goes through this pro- process of redistributing the coins. So eventually it will be stable with enough liquidity. Um, I don't think Bitcoin will ever not be volatile. Okay. And the reason is because you can't, when there's a change in the demand, you can't change the supply. So when the demand goes up, you can't increase the supply. When the demand goes down, you can't decrease the supply. So there will, there's just this inherent inability to stabilize Bitcoin. There you go. So definition of sound money, money not liable to sudden appreciation or depreciation in value, stable money. So, yeah. Interesting. It's going to put the cat amongst the pigeons. So, so neither Monero or Bitcoin are sound money. Yeah, ne- neither neither are sound money. Is and anything sound money? Well, not really. I mean, gold might be the closest thing because gold historically hasn't had these big swings in volatility. So that would be the closest thing. In my blog post, I wrote that that Bitcoin isn't sound money, but it is metallic money. Metallic money just means it's hard to inflate into copy and paste. And I said, Bitcoin is cypherpunk money, imperfect cypherpunk money, because it's peer to peer. Now, going back to your original question about, about Bitcoin, so, and Bitcoin maximalism, and why do they not like Monero? It's because their cognitive model of Bitcoin is sound money. And so because of that, it's like, it's like God is great, Bitcoin is sound money, they, they can't deviate from that. And so they, they turn into a, a morality question. See, I hodl Bitcoin. It's mm-hmm. the only thing I hodl. But I've always said I can think of scenarios where I would use Monero. I can easily think of scenarios where I'd use Monero if I had to get by something specific that was perhaps I'd have to go to a dark web. Mm-hmm. My preference would be to use Monero because my fear with Bitcoin is that I would leave a trace of what I've done. With Monero, I'd feel a little bit more confident that I wouldn't. And that has pissed people off in the past, but I mean, you have to, have to get beyond that. Yeah. Um, were, would you have considered yourself a Bitcoin maximalist at one point? Yeah, I, I did. And it, it's because how it started out, I think, was good as a reaction against ICOs. Like, yeah. So I had the International Blockchain Real Estate Association in my startup VLOX, and I was offered many, many opportunities at ICOs, both people who wanted to do one for my startup, for my nonprofit, and then I, this one um, ICO was going to give me a million dollars in tokens just to put my name on their pitch deck. And so I turned down significant amount of money against ICOs, and so at the time that made sense. But it, it's become a farce of what it can be. And your point about Monero is a good one because that's, you wanna use Monero because it's cypherpunk money. It's private, it's, it's fungible. And so if we understood Bitcoin is cypherpunk money, we, we would value it more for just its, its utility. Does that mean uh, guns and Bitcoin is gonna <clears throat> launch nfts in a DAO now we've, we've already launched nfts have you really oh yeah on which blockchain um stacks okay interesting so now you are a proponent of bitcoin and monero are you open-minded to any cryptocurrency no i mean still most of of the stuff in crypto is junk so that's what's hard to distinguish is yeah. it's almost all junk but when something is good 
I think that's probably the resistance because it's just there's so much bad. So how could there possibly be something good among that? And um, we don't need to go into stacks, but I think stacks is one of the very, very few non-Bitcoin things that's good. Monero is the other one. Well, let's talk about stacks. I, I can't argue about stacks from a technical point of view. Uh, Maneeb's, <laughs> Maneeb's asked to come on the show a bunch of times. He actually did. We recorded a show once, but it didn't work out. Um, it was We just kind of stopped it. It didn't work out. Uh, and I get a lot of messages from people saying, look at stacks. Stacks is interesting. And at the same time, I speak to other people and they're like, no, stacks is bullshit. Um, Explain Stacks to me and why people should care about it. Well, I've had the same reaction. So a couple of days ago, Adam Back, I, I posted something about Stacks, how I did a swap between Stacks and Bitcoin in a, in a swap. And Adam Back called it a shitcoin. So him and I got into that. But Stacks is basically, it's a, it's a layer one blockchain that's built on top of Bitcoin. It has smart contracts, it has DeFi, it has NFTs, it has a domain namespace. So it's kind of like, Bitcoin's extension layer for programmability. Stacks makes Bitcoin programmable. programmable. What does it mean when you say built on top of Bitcoin? So Stacks is its own blockchain that will settle on Bitcoin. So um, um, Stacks has transactions just like any other blockchain. And what they do is they stuff all those into one block, its own block. So there's a Stacks blockchain. And then they hash all those transactions and they insert that hash into a Bitcoin transaction. So you could think about every 10 minutes, all the stacks blockchain transactions come together, hashed and inserted as metadata into the Bitcoin blockchain. Why do they do that? To anchor it, just to anchor it and to take take advantage of Bitcoin's, you know, immutability and all that stuff. Okay. But it does mean the stacks has its own token, mm-hmm. yada, yada. I mean, maybe we'll look at it at some point, maybe. Um, so back to Monero, is, uh, that's the biggest part of your business now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's it still is more more people use Monero than Bitcoin uh, to pay for things. Although that's been an exception because of our conference, we've had sponsors that will pay in Bitcoin because they're okay. Bitcoin companies naturally. But if you look at the non-sponsors, it's still Monero. And going back to it, I think if we understood Bitcoin as cypherpunk money, Monero cypherpunk money, then we're not so hung up about hodling and getting into these monotheistic things, because then it's we understand what it really is, and and you could accept that Bitcoin is volatile. You could accept that bad thing about Bitcoin. You could accept other bad things because you realize it's not sound money. It's cypherpunk money. It's metal cypherpunk money. What do you mean by cypherpunk money? It's peer-to-peer. It's just it's just that simple. It's like BitTorrent, right? BitTorrent is peer-to-peer, but for music and files. Right, so it's money that you can use on the underground, away from everyone, for secret transactions, for stuff you want to do outside of the state. It, it's got that kind of rebel attitude. Yeah, and, and, and the reason why I emphasize that is because why, like, people get mad at things you say. And part of it is if you say something that is not positive about Bitcoin, it's because they, they, they can't accept that it's not sound money. They can't accept that there's flaws to Bitcoin. And, and cypherpunk money never was meant to be perfect money. It's just meant to route around third parties. Cypherpunk money just routes around third parties, whether it's banks or the government. And there's not arguments about, is it the perfect money? There's, it's not the perfect money. And I don't think I'd want to be in a Bitcoin standard. Because? Well, it's just Bitcoin is too volatile. I mean, if we were to move to a Bitcoin standard, could you imagine the cost of your goods changing by 50%? 
in a couple of weeks. Well, I have talked about that. I mean, I'm not one of those people who believes that Bitcoin will replace all money. Um, I like the idea of a, a combination of free banking with local currencies issued by banks and Bitcoin. And I have that ability to flip between the two as I wish. And again, interesting, I had a conversation uh, yesterday with, no, it was two days ago with Eric Yates and we were talking about no, no, yesterday with uh, Nick Barty and we're talking about CBDCs and essentially CBDs will start to reflect the era of free banking because whilst you have Fed coin, you will have JPM Morgan coin, you know, you will have Chase coin. So you'll have all these variety of different coins. And I feel like you need the stability of a fiat currency alongside Bitcoin for whatever you want to use Bitcoin, whether it's hodling or spending. And I'm also a spender. Yeah. I spend Bitcoin. Yeah. Well, that's, you bring up a really good point about fiat. Fiat, it could actually be the best money. Like if, if, if you were to like have a board of directors of a central fiat money and you gave them $500 million to keep it stable and you put them in jail if they inflated it, that would be a really good money that, that would complement Bitcoin. And I think you're right with the CV, the central bank uh, digital currencies, JP Morgan, because if you look at like the 1890s, we had private banking. Banks issued their own currencies, and they were pretty good. Yep. Nick Carter wrote about this. Yeah. Yeah, Nick Carter's really smart. So I think the problem isn't fiat. It's the centralization of fiat. Because if you could choose between U.S. dollar, J.P. Morgan, fiat, gold-backed fiat, just like any open market, you'd have some really good fiat. Well, you'd have, you'd have the competition, and you'd have the ability to hedge by holding a basket of different fiats if you wanted to. I mean, that's the ideal. You have a wallet with your basket of fiends and your Bitcoin mm -hmm. and your Monero. And Monero, it's a perfect combination. And your snacks, snacks NFT. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to go into NFTs. Yeah. No. <laughs> uh, okay, interesting. Um, so you you don't mind getting out there and having a wrangle with the Bitcoiners on Twitter. It feels like to me that you are, the point, one of the points you're trying to make here is that the, the organism of Bitcoin um, kind of seems to have like groupthink with regards to topics. And maybe ideas come in and they get accepted and everyone sticks to that. And then we have this uh, consistent narrative that pushes through. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like everything should be challenged, which is why you're on the show, coming here with a different point of view and while I'll have a range of guests, but... Am I right in your observation? Yeah, I, I've always enjoyed questioning things, I think, like, like you. But it used to not be this way in Bitcoin. So I got into Bitcoin 2011, and it wasn't like this. Tell me about it. Well, for example, the first NFTs actually were on Bitcoin, on something called Counterparty. And that was like 2014 or something. And it, it just used to not be that way. The first ICO was on Bitcoin, MasterCoin. Yep. That was, was that 2015? And when those came out, there wasn't this shrieking and clutching of pearls and, and all that. It was just like, cool, innovation. But is that, is that the fault with the shitcoiners? Yeah, and I think that's probably what changed it was all the terrible ICOs. But, but people need to be adults and still maintain their objectivity and say, these ICOs are bad, but maybe there's other things that are still good. You can't just throw out everything. But it's so much more convenient to just have like this one view, that Bitcoin only. It's, it's, it's mentally lazy and it's very comforting to know that. It's, it's like, it's so nice. Isn't it nice to think there's one perfect money and I just need to focus my identity 
and all my thoughts on that. And I don't need to challenge or question anything. It's very hard to question just in general in life. So what would you question? What are the most important issues you would be pushing back against? Bitcoin is selling money because I think that leads to the, to the maximalism. I think not spending. I think not being open to Monero. And the other thing with Bitcoin maximalism is that it pushes out so many other tools that we need. So people think, I'll just fix the money, I'll fix the world. No, Bitcoin is very narrow in what it fixes. But people, when they, when they just focus so much on Bitcoin and on money, well, what about everything else? Right? What about civilization? What about civil rights? What about all these other things that Bitcoin has nothing to do with? And so that's the problem with an overemphasis on Bitcoin and seeing it as perfect money. You can just sit back and say, Bitcoin's going to fix us. I just need to hodl and like everything else is sucking. Right. So you think it's a naive view that if we all hodl and Bitcoin gets big enough and everyone adopts Bitcoin, we stop the central bankers printing huge amounts of fiat and society will suddenly repair. Yeah, and we stop wars and, and it's not true like Bitcoin funds the state with taxes that we pay um, with the licenses that, that Bitcoin companies have to pay. So Bitcoin funds the state um, and, and with these central bank digital currencies, I think that's going to give it a good idea to the state to have more control and censorship. So it's just amazing to me that people don't have this more objective viewpoint of Bitcoin and very intelligent people. Very intelligent people don't. Do you, th do you think perhaps they do and their self-censorship because you don't want to be ejected from the crowd? I, like you, have gone into many battles on Twitter, somehow survived it. Um, but I don't agree. Like, I'm not an anarchist, not really a libertarian. I'm often referred to as a status cuck. Um, I'm not somebody who wants guns in the UK. I believe in democracy, even though it's fragile at the moment um, but a lot of these ideas within certain sections of the Bitcoin community are not popular it's like why do you think like that do you, why do you think do you think do you think people are self-censoring or do you think they are just they believe in the narrative oh they're definitely self-censoring and I saw this with Monero and that came out um, people that I'd never heard talk about Monero did um, People sent me messages, oh, I love Monero, I'm glad you're accepting it, this is so cool. Um, and and for, for a second with Stacks, when we came out with our NFTs. Um, Did you get shit for that? Only by a couple people, Okay. but a lot of people liked it. And, and, and um, I've seen people who send me like DMs who agree with me, but they don't, don't really speak up. I have the same, I get DMs and emails and people saying, I appreciate you, you know, being balanced here or uh, trying to take the different view, but it sometimes it. I've definitely self-censored. Um, I would probably be talking about more wilder ideas and be more, trying to be more objective, but there are times where it's just like, I need a bit of peace and quiet. Yeah, it's a tough battle. Yeah. Yeah, because I see like, I see people disagreeing with you and calling you names, and we, you know, we had a Twitter battle years ago, which we did was kind of ugly, and I I regret it. But, Me too. Um, it's just sometimes not worth it. Like when I saw Adam back, you know, give that comment, it's just like, oh gosh, I have to say something back because it's Adam back. It's not some mm -hmm. random troll. He's a very intelligent person. And yep. I, I respect greatly. But sometimes, hey, I got stuff to do. <laughs> uh, I appreciate the fact that you, you think like that as well. I actually think um, 
I think it's particularly got bad in this last two years, this kind of pleb army of whatever dot hodl or mm-hmm. could be LA dot hodl, Arizona dot hodl, fucking anywhere dot hodl, um, that meme and attack people who aren't of the same group think. And I think that's actually harmful for Bitcoin. And I I think it scares people off and it stops open and valid debate, which is why I love the podcast, because no one can stop this conversation happening. There's no one yelling at me from the side, maybe Danny giving me a stern look occasionally, but there's no one can stop this conversation happening. And, and I support more of this. Uh, and there's plenty of people, I mean, like I say, I said to Danny, I said, uh, wait till you meet Ragnar, it's not going to be what you think. He's, uh, he's a really, really nice guy and I've battled him on Twitter, but... Similar, there's other people I've battled, but usually if I sit down, you can actually work through and have the conversations. And I think perhaps Twitter, the medium, is you could argue that's part of that civilizational collapse. Yeah, because we don't have those intelligent conversations. So as I've been studying Rome and and ancient Greece, um, part of their education was foundational was rhetoric, was logic. I mean, years and years you would spend, it wasn't like one semester, it was years of growing up learning rhetoric and learning logic. And they would have these great debates and they would memorize passages. Well, now it's like, we don't read these long passages. We don't practice rhetoric or logic. We just have tweets and Instagrams. It's quick, quick thoughts. And you're right. I think it's a reflection largely of our civilization, which is short attention span and everything being cheap. Yeah. Yeah. And also the, the gaming out of like the reward mechanism that spikes the serotonin when you get a jab in on someone, yeah. everyone's like, yeah, well done. And yeah. 500 likes and a bunch of retweets. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, it's, it's, I've, I've found it so important to take a break from Twitter and to read old books because mm-hmm. it just kind of slows you down, takes you out of that, that constant dopamine hits or drops. If you're going to recommend one book now, what would it be? Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. It's kind of his private journal. Okay. Danny, let's get that ordered. Another book to get through. Uh, yeah. I'm with you on that as well. Um, I don't take enough breaks from Twitter, but I'm definitely not on it as much as I used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually think it can be damaging for mental health. Um, but most of all, one of the saddest things I've seen with Twitter is that we've fortunately had this rise in independent thinkers, independent content creators. But sadly, some of them seem to be trapped by the benefits of audience capture. And people who you think are a good, interesting, independent voice as their profile grows, they seem to power up for the echo chamber rather than be objective. There doesn't seem to be enough objective thinkers who are willing to walk the middle ground. Yeah, there's so few objective thinkers. And in every year or two, you see a rise of, of someone who becomes popular on Twitter. And it's so predictable how they do that. And it's by saying things that everyone wants to hear and saying nothing that no one wants to hear. It's so easy to, 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 to rise on Twitter and social media. It's, it's the formula. Yeah. All right, let's get back to guns because I do want to talk to you about uh, printed guns. We did talk about that before. Mm-hmm. It's a... For people who are, who are nervous about guns or maybe anti-guns, it seems to be the worst tool in the world. It's like, you know, in the UK we don't have guns, but if you had the ability to print guns, you suddenly are potentially exporting gun culture to the rest of the world to places that aren't ready. But again, I know you support the idea of printing guns. And my assumption is, is because you support the right for anyone to own a gun in any situation they feel they need it. Yeah. 
I think it comes down to okay, basic human rights, right? You have a right to free speech and a right to religion, but I think you, the first right is a right to survive. Your first human right is a right to live. Your first human right is a, is a right to defend yourself. And so when you don't have a gun, you simply can't effectively do that in this age. You, you just can't. And so the flip side of that is the, is the greatest existential threat is, is the state and they have a monopoly on violence. It sounds like a talking point, but that really is an existential threat that I see. Okay, explain why. Because I can't remember who, it might have been Sam Harris. He said uh, a very controversial line. And if it isn't Sam Harris, please don't uh, be angry with me. But I think it was him who said that one of the best things we did was give somebody a monopoly on violence. Well, I think the 20th century refutes that. I mean, what was it, 120 million people killed by the state? I think it depends on which state and which scenario. Certainly, the monop- given the monopoly on violence to have uh, armies to go to the Middle East and drop bombs on people we don't know, obviously the logic fails. Um, I think perhaps, I don't think he was referring to that, and I don't think he was referring to the monopoly of violence under communist rule whereby they just arrested uh, anyone and killed anyone. I think it was more that uh, at a domestic level, the monopoly on violence as a police force maybe is better than private police forces or individuals policing themselves. Well, I, I think it goes back to the civilization in, in Nietzsche. When Nietzsche said, you know, God is dead, what came of that? Communism. Communism became the religion, no longer Christianity, but, but the state became the religion. And so you can make the argument that if civilization was different, we wouldn't have had these genocides of the 20th century, and therefore my argument would be weaker because we, we never had it. I mean, you didn't have genocides in the, in, the, in the 19th century, the 18th century. You've had big wars throughout history, and the state has always been dangerous. But again, Athens, Athens and, and especially Rome, like, yeah, they were an empire. So it's, it, it really depends on Civilization, Athens, they were city-states. They didn't go out and conquer the world, really, too much. Alexander the Great was sort of an exception. But generally, Athens was sort of keep to themselves in their own city-states. So that civilization is one where it would be a lot different gun debate. I mean, I think, like, in the UK, I would imagine if I wanted to get a gun, I know the guy to ask who might know the guy who might know the guy, right? I think I might. Uh, One of the reasons I wouldn't ever have one if I was caught in possession of a gun, I think it's automatic, like 10 years in jail. Something really, really, really severe punishment for being found in possession of a gun. Um, I think it would be regulated out in the UK in that people would be scared to use it. But what scenarios are you talking about that people would benefit well, I think it goes back to, like, say, the American Revolution. So we wouldn't have the U.S., for better or worse, if it wasn't for guns back then. Yeah. Um, like right now in Myanmar, um, the rebels are fighting kind of a fascist government, and they've 3D printed their own guns, the FGC-9. Really? Oh, yeah. Fascinating. How did they get their ammo? I don't know. But ammo's a lot easier to get than a gun. You can get ammo anywhere. I'm sure you could find that in the U.K., so if you look at them, you're like, well, should they have guns? Well, absolutely, you know? Um, but again, that's a civilization issue because they're, they're fascist. If you were to go to like Great Britain, I mean, generally it's like a peaceful, well, it used to be more so, but- Kimberly. 
We're quite peaceful. Yeah, generally, you guys are nice people. Yeah. But it's a lot different than parts of the U.S. What What is the current situation of regulation with regards to printed guns? Is it state by state or is that is it federally outlawed? Where, where, where are we at with that? So federally and most federally, it's it's generally not illegal to manufacture your own weapon as long as you're not a prohibited person, which means violent felony. So as long as you don't have a violent felony charge, you can make and use your own weapons, but you can't sell them. Okay. That's it. And is that, and are there different states have different rules or does it just fall into the same gun laws of the rule? Um, everywhere needs to follow that rule, but it doesn't matter the state, different states are trying to infringe on that. There's a couple, I think it's Pennsylvania, maybe California, New Jersey, where they're trying to pass this law where that, that's illegal to manufacture your own guns. It's unconstitutional, but they're, they're trying. Why is it against the Second Amendment? Yeah, it's against the Second Amendment. Well, because I think it's a federal statute that you could, you could own, own those kind of guns. You can make your own guns. And um, speaking about Cody Wilson for a second, so it was um, Biden, President Biden supposedly is going to try to do an executive either order or through the ATF, which is our, our gun yeah. agency, the ATF. And they're going to try to say that 80% guns are illegal, which means it's 80% complete and you have to complete the 20% yourself which is currently legal. So you get a kit and it has, has the magazine and it's got the lower and it's got the trigger, but it's not assembled, it's just a, a parts kit. The point is that the Biden administration is gonna try to make that 80% gun illegal, but Cody Wilson, he came up with, he, he has this uh, CNC machine that will take a piece of metal and, and finish it out to be a gun. Well, he, he changed it to where you get three pieces of aluminum, just solid aluminum, like you got it at a hardware store, it looked like and he can machine that to a gun. So he completely went around that by saying, you're starting out with blocks of aluminum and I'm still gonna be able to make a gun from blocks of aluminum. So, so with President Biden saying, we're gonna eliminate 80%, well, Cody Wilson is at a 0% starting point and he can still make the guns and go right around this 80% thing. So that's why gun control debate, it's, it's kind of dead. Like there's no stopping it. Uh, just side question, do you think violent criminals should be able to own guns? I think they should once they've served their sentence because I know people who went to jail and have gone to prison and they paid their time to society, they rehabbed, and that's what's supposed to be the point of jail is to go for a certain time and then move on with your life and be forgiven and get your life together. Can they, can they currently ever get a gun or once you've been convicted of a violent crime, are you, is, like, is it like a permanent record? I'm not sure about each state. I'm not sure. I know um, I know someone who had a violent uh, felony, and after 10 years, he was able to get it expunged from his record, and then he could own a gun. So Cody R Wilson really is a pain in the ass for these people. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's a master at being a pain in the ass for the state. He, he, he plays it like a game. That's, I think it's sort of a game to him. Is he winning? So far. I mean, because partly thanks to his efforts, now we have a proliferation of 3D-printed guns. Now, because of his latest um, change to a CNC machine, people can build a gun from blocks of aluminum. Have you done it? No. Have you seen it done? Just seen the videos. It's kind of wild, really. Yeah, it, it's it's some it's it seems scary because it's not controllable in a way. It's or it's very hard to control. I would say. Oh. Well, listen, we should, we should definitely talk about your uh, event before we close out. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thanks for coming out. Tell me about the event. 
So it's April 9th and 10th in Miami. It's going to be our third event. It's a Freedom Technology Conference. We're going to talk about Bitcoin, encryption, coin joining, Monero, 3D printed guns, DIY guns, um, any of those topics. So two full days of, of, uh, of talks. And if you're going to Bitcoin 2022, you only have to stay an extra two days and you get to go. Exactly. So Bitcoin 2022, the main days are Thursday, Friday. We're Saturday, Sunday. And the one thing I forgot to mention about the event is we're going to have our first ever Freedom Tech Awards. So we're going to have things like best hardware wallet, um, best 3D printed gun designer, and, and hopefully you, you'll be able to still host that and get yeah, out I the awards. Yeah, so I've, um, uh, I've changed my travel. So oh. I'll be traveling back. I was going to be traveling back on the 10th, I think. I'm going to be traveling back on the 11th now. So I'm oh. staying for your event. Thank you very much. Uh, Danny might still be there. You can be there? Yeah, I think I'll still be in Miami. I'll still be there. Uh, my daughter will be in town. Fun. Should we take her to shoot guns? <laughs> <laughs> I, that's, that's not a question I'm going to answer. <laughs> tell, tell people how to find out about the event. Um, just gunsandbitcoin.com and we're on Twitter at gunsandbitcoin. Okay, anything else we didn't talk about that you wish we'd have covered? Can I ask a question? Yeah, please do. So when we talk about 3D printed guns and like maybe exporting gun culture to the UK, like in the interview a couple of years ago, I think you were talking about like when, when you were growing up, your dad taught you like gun safety and all that sort of stuff. But if you export gun culture to the UK, like it's such an immature market. Like, what do you think about that? Well, that's a good question because you said gun culture, but there's actually multiple gun cultures. Mm -hmm. So my gun culture is kind of guys who, who drive trucks. My dad drove a truck, I drive a truck. So that's gun culture for truck drivers, I would say. Then there's sort of thug gun culture, mm -hmm. which is vastly different. And then there's 3D printed gun culture, which is very actually nerdy because 3D printing is, is very tedious actually and kind of boring, I think. Um, good results. So it just depends on the gun culture that, that we would export. I think what Danny's trying to say, good question, man. You trying to take my job. <laughs> um, I think Danny's trying to say is that, for example, when the first time I ever went to shoot guns with, with Jameson Lop in North Carolina. And when I went to the range, I spoke to a group of people there and every message was the same. My family's always had guns. My dad taught me to shoot. They taught me gun safety, etc. If we export gun, the ability to manufacture guns, uh, I guess Danny's questioning who is the people who will be getting this and who is the people teaching them about safety. Uh, even recently when I went out to Texas, uh, and I was with a friend, so about eight of us went out, we were shooting. Um, there was a, you know, he, he gave us all a talking to. It's like, this is where the guns are, this is how we're going to operate. Mm. Uh, uh, and I've made mistakes, little mistakes. Mm -hmm. uh, in I remember in the range, they I wanted to see a gun, she gave it to me and I held it up and she's like, put it down, aim it at the floor. Yeah. I was like, but you don't keep it loaded. She said, no, this is what you do all the time. Mm. Uh, uh, and we know people can accidentally shoot people, accidentally shoot themselves. I guess Danny's questioning, is that, isn't that an inherent risk of 3D printed guns? I, I think the spread of 3D guns, 3D printed guns will depend, again, on the civilization. So in a place like Myanmar, the civilization there is one that's oppressed by the federal, by, by the, uh, the government. If you export it to Mexico, that's a cartel civilization. Um, if you export it to the UK, I don't, I don't know. You guys have kind of a unique situation there. We have a knife culture. Knife culture. <laughs> well, the knife culture people will adopt the thug gun culture that you guys hunt. I mean, you know, 
the hounds and the dogs and the foxes. Well, that's uh, legal now. Yeah. So, so that's a gun culture. So those people will probably be safe. So I think it depends on which culture and even with, within each country. I think the risk is, is the people who will be attracted to this are the people that you don't want to be attracted to this. Not everyone, but some. Yeah. But I think that goes for any sort of freedom, like, right, the internet, like with encryption, there's going to be some bad actors who use encryption and Tor for some very dark, bad things. But we've decided as a society that that's worth the trade-off. And that's, that's to me, what it is, it's worth the trade-off. That's fair. Did I answer your question, Danny? I think so. Do the, uh, do the 3D printed guys alongside the manufacturer of their machines also provide education on safety? Yeah, it's kind of funny. Again, it's a little nerdy. Like these guys put out videos and they, they test each gun. So when they created, create a gun, they don't just put out the blueprint, so to speak. Okay. They alpha test it, they beta test it until it's perfectly safe and then they publicly release the files. Um, there's so much education now about how to set up your printer and fix issues with your printer. And, and um, it's, it's very safety first, very safety first in terms of the manufacturer. And then like when we had our, our last Bear Arms and Bitcoin conference, we went to the gun range and you had all these 3D printed guns and it looks scary, but it's safety first, just like, like when you've shot guns, it's safety first. So safety it's, it's a safe, safe gun culture. Safety first. We did, uh, we did end up shooting this you'll know it straight away this like explosive stuff yeah what's it called um it could be frangible ammo no, no it was like um it was like a what was it called oh shit i can't remember that was good fun <laughs> yeah out in the out in the desert in vegas was it was it the target that would blow up or was it the it was like was? it was like these little orange cylinder of like a probably pound. tannerite tannerite yeah yeah tannerite. yeah we had like 10 pounds of tannerite and i did you see my video where i shot it with a sniper rifle i don't think so i've got to show you it now i cheated in the video it looks like i got it on my like first or second shot it was actually like my 15th shot okay that's not too bad but that was wild well listen look i always like talking to you um i think these conversations in person always work a lot better and i'm really looking forward to coming to the event see see what i'm going to learn I, I am nervous about 3d printed guns um, but I've always learned from you, so I appreciate you coming on. How do people follow you? Um, I'm on Twitter, just at Ragnarly. Then my blog is ragnarly.com. We will put it all in the show notes. And good luck with the event. Thanks, thanks for coming in, man. Well, thanks for having me here. We're always welcome. Thanks. All right. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel, or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com.